Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello, and welcome to episode 53 of Bilge Pumps, where I am no longer just Dr. Alexander Clark. I am Dr. Alexander Clark, creator of emojis. Yes, <laughs> I have added a new skill. We can be scared. We are joined this week by Drak NFL and by Jamie Cedar. So it's the traditional crew. And we've got a, a, a rum barrel load of topics because we've got infrastructure and shipyards. We've got the American choice destroyer, fighter or submarine. Which one shall we fund? Then we've got China's new carrier, which one of us has already said looks like Charles de Gaulle. So we shouldn't have to worry about it too much. And China also deciding to start intimidating Malaysia, or rather ramping up their intimidation of Malaysia, which if you remember a few months back, we did say we reckoned it would be Vietnam or Malaysia they would be turning to next. So we're in for a fun one. This could be long, even with just the three of us, which is and what's really cool. I can say this, but Jamie can't fairly sure his internet is being throttled by the government. <laughs> um, oh, well, not he's having government, to talk to us from internet, providers. internet providers. Yes, the, uh, the, the IPs. Hello, IPs. We love you so. Right. No, they're, just, they're just trying to force me to change over from the old cable network to the Australia's notorious new NBN, or National Broadband Network. Oh. So, yeah. Fun times. Fun times. Now, what, let's start off with the infrastructure thing, because let's be honest, all of us can talk about the issues that, we are de that our countries are dealing with. If you consider Britain has limited yards and it's trying to provide work for those yards is what's causing the, has caused the Type 26, Type 31 program and a lot of work in a national shipbuilding strategy, which they're trying to get going and various products. You've got America which is working out how it's going to keep its yards going and doesn't have enough. And then you've got Australia, which arguably the whole problem with the, with the Collins class replacement is that instead of possibly keeping a program going and keeping it as, as a constant sort of thing, a, a constant submarine generation program, i.e. launching a new sub every three to four years to keep the skills going, they let all the skills die. And now they've got to go to a French company to try and rebuild those skills. This is all infrastructure. This is all stuff which governments are supposed to do as part of their day-to-day -day job. Yeah, but the, then politics gets involved. Mm. Which is kind of the opposite to government. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I was a cadet journalist cutting, uh, cutting my teeth um, when... You know, the Collins program was floated in the late 1980s. And, you know, the the pitch was, you know, build up our own infrastructure. Not only do we get the jobs, we also get the ongoing capacity to repair, upgrade and replace submarines instead of having to shop around every couple of decades for a new um, submarine being built overseas. Well, that was not that didn't go down terribly well with the uh, opposition party at the time, who you know, pretty much vowed to destroy the program. 
So, you know, between the two of them in the intervening decades, one lot never really followed up with their promise of providing an ongoing, you know, um, industry capability for the submarines, and the other other lot actively pursued the "we're going to destroy it" policy. And uh, this sort of meant that ten years after we should have started thinking about replacing us. Our submarines, we started thinking about replacing our submarines, which of course was 10 years too late to um, avoid a looming capability crisis when it comes to the aging current fleet, and 10 years too late to take advantage of the whole swathe of homegrown skills we'd grown and then thrown out in the trash. Uh, and now, so now the talk is well, you know, we're paying a, a huge dividend on this French contract in order to bring those schools back to Australia. But uh, every... He lost the game. But every, but every year, um, we seem to be... Every year, we, there seems to come an announcement where, uh, well, actually, we're going to be building less of them here, but no, the price isn't going down. So I'm not really sure how that's going to turn out either. Anyway, that's our, that's our list of woes. What, what about yours? Well, let's be honest, the French make an entire economy out of charging for fermented grape juice. So, um, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure that, this, that, that one of the major reasons behind all of this is because we make better wine than they do. As a non drinker, I'm not getting involved in that one. Mind you, though, they've bought up most of our companies. So, you know, mm. <laughs> well, that's one way. I mean, speaking of the French, actually, that this is um, this is a it, ship, shipyards and infrastructure are a perennial issue for this kind of stuff, because the the French are notorious for in the sort of World War One, World War Two period of not being not being able to construct the ships they'd want to, because their shipyards were too small, mm. and. To be fair, they don't entirely help themselves, given the fact that Charles de Gaulle, a, a lot of its problems come from the fact it is just fractionally too small. And the reason it was fractionally too small is because it was politically expedient to order it from one shipyard that didn't have access to the really, really big um, dockyard that is, is kind of the pride and joy of the French shipbuilding industry. And now that it's the politically convenient elements of French shipbuilding have access to said dockyard, magically all of a sudden the replacement for Charles de Gaulle has suddenly gotten a whole lot larger. It's amazing. Oh, I get that. <laughs> but yeah, you are limited to the, um, to, to the to the shipyards and the dockyards you mm. have. I mean, that was a major issue for the Ro Royal Navy in the lead up to World yeah. War Two as well, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. you know, why why were they building carriers the size they were? Why were they building battleships the size they were? Mm. Because those were the yards that could hold them. Yeah, it was kind that of a, a a weird one with the Royal Navy in that they had the shipyards that could build absolutely colossal vessels of massive, absolutely massive size, but the Royal Navy's infrastructure didn't exist to support it was a dry docks wasn't it yeah, yeah. In, in some cases it was things like well can we fit it in the dry docks in gibraltar and malta and around the world which is an additional problem for the british because it's not just about the home base dry docks um mm. that was a factor for the hood and then you've also got eventually you get to a point where it's can even our home-based 
docks and and dry docks and ship facilities actually contain these vessels um and that that was that was going to be a problem um for things like the lion class and the g3s and the n3s they were going to have to expand dockyard facilities in the uk as well as across the planet and they were also going to have to um dredge out certain channels to make them deeper which in actual fact even these days is a limitation on the royal navy because if you've ever seen any of the videos of them moving queen elizabeth and prince of wales out of their place of construction the gate out of that pool is you you literally have people standing either side and watching the bare inches of clearance either side of those holes as they're edged out and they had to dredge a huge section a huge channel into portsmouth to accommodate their draft yeah we knew a supercarrier was coming the moment they said they had the money to move hmm. the mary rose yeah. when i talked to captain uh, sequest a, a few a few uh, weeks ago um when he brought iowa into portsmouth they had to dredge the channel out then as well i was going to say that someone also inconveniently built a bridge um at some point didn't they and it's a constant cause of uh, concern when your carriers go in and out of portsmouth mm. not the bridge in There's portsmouth the, i think it's the, the fourth bridge uh, isn't it yeah okay sorry but uh, yeah, look, i understand um, it i understand it's a similar problem now with the us navy and their super carriers they've only got one dock capable of um receiving them mm. well for a long for a long time it, for the us one of the restrictions on the height of ships was can it fit under the brooklyn bridge mm. there's all sorts of weird and wonderful little things and i suppose this is the thing because it would be expensive but possible to widen the gates on that on that um harbour pool where the queen elizabeth were built they did dredge portsmouth although they didn't want to because it was going to be quite expensive to do so um but there's a limit on how much you can dredge the that channel before you hit bedrock you you can't lift the brooklyn bridge um and let's say going back to world war one world war two you know, especially the run-up to world war two when you had the french with the richelieu's building them in segments um basically building the main part of the hull and then having to attach the bow and stern separately because they physically couldn't get the the ship the the ship the whole ship in the dockyard that's probably not yeah. a bad idea anyway, since uh, the bow and sterns tend to be rather expendable during combat, don't they? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's true, but it's also not particularly convenient when you're trying to build it all at once. And I think this is the, this is one of the problems, because as you say, there's like the US, they've got one now, currently one operational yard capable of building carriers, but that's got physical limits to its size as well. Um, and this is where, in some respects, places like china and russia if they have the money do have the advantage in that some of the areas where they're now building ships are significantly less um i don't developed. want to say de- i would yeah well, i didn't want to necessarily say developed but less densely developed because mm. if you ever have a have a look at a satellite photo of norfolk uh naval yard in the us or portsmouth or Rosseth in the UK, you look at it and you go, 
there is no way you could physically extend these slipways and, and building facilities more than a few feet before you run into some other very expensive, very important and very large and heavy bits of infrastructure that built up around it. Whereas some of these places in um, in China and Russia and other places, you can see there's actually quite a lot of space around them because those are relative, relatively speaking new facilities. And so at least for the minute, there is the space to expand them. Um, whereas it's even going back to the 1910s, you look at Hood when she's under construction, um, her bow, although they just about fit her on the slipway, her bow is extending over the end of the slipway and is neatly slotted between some buildings on the other side of the little train line that runs now that now is temporarily running underneath the ship and mm. they have to build it i think it's on number three slipway but there's a very specific slipway in that shipyard that they have to build it on because you've got the river that the the, the shipyard is on but then you've got this tributary river that enters the main river directly opposite the number three slipway. And that's the only one that they can build a ship the size of Hood on, because when they launch it, it needs that extra depth to run back on. Uh, and you right. see the you see the same thing in um, in a lot of shots of the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s French Navy, where they've got all these wonderful river based shipyards which were, have, again, they've got a long history, they've got a lot of very dense development, they've all been built up usually during the Napoleonic Wars and things like that. And when you're floating out a three, 4,000 tonne wooden ship of the line, fantastic, great, you've got all the room you could, you could ever want. But then when you're trying to float out a 10, 20, 30,000 or more tonne steam and steel battleship, you suddenly find the whole thing's incredibly cramped to what used to be a really nice sort of ri wide river that you could have lines of capital ships moored on and regular river traffic going up and down. You're now suddenly looking at going, the whole thing's basically a log created a log jam by having one brew dreadnought and a destroyer moored up next to each other. Yeah. So... Um, you do need to do this. You need to start thinking about what you're going to be building. It's one of the things and where you're going to be building it, mm. If you look at camel ads, they can watch quite big ships, but they need to, uh, you, you need to do some investment. If you wanted to make them much bigger than what we do, we build now. It's if is, we're is talking. It time, of, is it time to move um, HMS victory and um, warrior to um, uh, maybe up the Thames alongside of uh, Belfast to, to clear out those old docks. Oh, those old docks aren't much more space. Honestly, and, Vic, and Warriors just moored alongside. Is it? Okay. Yeah. It's it's going to be a um, it's going to be a very interesting thing, as I say, because uh, the one thing you don't want to do when you're upgrading your infrastructure is, again, I know it sounds like we're going after the French, but they are pretty much a DK study for this in the early 20th century. The French keep upgrading their infrastructure so that they can go from pre-dreadnoughts to dreadnoughts and then dreadnoughts to super dreadnoughts and then into fast battleships. But they keep doing it in little increments that are just about enough to allow them to build the next class which again is kind of as we've said on, on this before several times it's an example of a failure of long-term thinking because they build 
they 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 expand their yards enough to fit super dreadnoughts like the Britannias, and then it turns out that when it comes to build something like the Normandy or the Leon, there's not enough space. And then when they come to build the Dunkirks, again they expand their infrastructure a little bit, but that's not quite enough to build the Richelieu's. And then eventually they're going around looking when it comes to what theoretically would be the Alsace class, the follow-ons to the Richelieu's. They're looking around at that, basically going, well, can we can we upgrade our infrastructure now to handle these, or are we going to have to build them in bits like we did with Richelieu, or are we going to have to accept building a smaller ship because that's the only thing we can fit in multiple yards? Whereas perhaps someone with a little bit more vision would have said, you know what? Let, let's do a major upgrade, like increase the capacity of a certain number of slipways by 50%. Yes, it'll cost slightly more at the time, but we'll only have to do it once and we won't have to do it three or four times in increments over the next couple of decades, especially given that yards like the St. Nazaire yard, the, the, um, or St. Nazaire, whatever it's called, the, the, the big one that Campbelltown went to blow up, um, those already existed ships well above the size of capital ships of the period already existed ocean liners and such so it was clear that shipbuilding technology could reach those kind of heights and anyone who'd looked back at i don't know the last three or four hundred years of warship building history would have realized that you know the trend of warships getting larger isn't going to stop mm, but are we getting to that point now well, I say we're we're in a position now where if the Royal Navy, I mean, we're not going to be replacing the QEs for a while, but if the Royal Navy wanted to build another carrier and they wanted it to be larger than the QEs, we physically don't currently have the option to do that. And we'd have to. I think the only dock facility we might have available is the one in Southampton, and we'd have to turn that into a construction yard. Hmm. So that's, it, the, uh, that's yeah. pretty much so. Or Camel Lairds, again, we could probably do it at, but again, we'd have to expand Camel Lairds slightly by dredging and possibly building up the hard a bit more. So this is what this is what I mean. It, we currently don't have the infrastructure. We'd have to expand something or uh, even something. With the Type 83s, with the size we're talking about them, mm. I'm honestly looking at the yards and thinking... Uh, this is going to be interesting. There aren't that many yards where you can mm. possibly build this. Yeah, and and this is this is I think going to be. I mean, the US has this issue as well at the moment. I'd say. I mean, they've got. A, I think there's one or two dock uh, shipbuilding facilities that, other than Newport, that used to be able to do it. I.e., they had the the size of the the building slips, but they're currently closed. So this is one of the one of the arguments as to why the US should look at building something along the lines of a QE sized carrier to supplement their carrier force if they're serious about taking on China, because it's there there are shipyards that can do that, approximately speaking, um, without interfering with the nuclear carrier program, but they can't increase their nuclear carrier building program without expanding the or and either reopening or rebuilding entire new shipyards which would be considerably more expensive and involve considerably longer time than 
um, th than building a slightly smaller area. Yeah. And, and of course, if you go through all that expense, you're going to end up basically looking at a situation of if we, we now have two shipyards capable of building big nuclear carriers, we've now got to basically double our build rate because with shipyards like that, they only really have one purpose and you pretty much have to keep them in operation 24-7, 365 days a year, every year. Otherwise, you, end, you run into, as you were saying earlier, Jamie, the problem that they have in Australia, and I understand they also have to a degree in Canada, where you build something, then you don't build something for a while, the expertise goes away, and you have to rebuild all that expertise again. Yeah. It's not, it's not like yeah, you can just I mean, take they're... a year or two off from building nuclear carriers and just tell everyone to kick back and chill their heels, unless... Unless the US government really wants to go like full on socialism job support and say, well, we're going to build a, a, every we're going to build a carrier every other build cycle. But everyone who works in that shipyard, apart from occasional retraining and visiting Norfolk to keep your skills up, gets kicked back for three or four years on the government's paycheck. Yeah, that'd be fun. They, they do that for politicians when they're not in power, don't they? When you're in opposition. Yes. But politicians think they're important. <laughs> um, well, look, you know, at the same time, we're looking at, um, uh, you know, th there's the other issue, of course, is what happens if you actually, actually need to repair something? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is why you've got two two yards, at, two slipways at Norfolk, or whatever, uh, two enclosed spaces at Norfolk. You could, so one is used for building, one's used for refit and repair. And so that, that's the thing is that you can either <laughs> at the moment, you can either build one carrier at a time or you can build two carriers at a time, but you can't refit any of your existing ones. OK. Which, and what, what about the uh, UK? You've got the capacity um, to repair something like um, a QE? Well, Rosyth, Rosyth could, the Babcock Yards theoretically can. Um, Camelair probably could, depending on the extent of the damage. Um, Plymouth? I know. I don't think Plymouth. I don't think Plymouth's got a big enough. I don't think they can get into Plymouth. No. Southampton again. <laughs> Although again, that would involve reopening stuff. Yeah. Um, as opposed to act, like, I think the active stuff is probably if it's something's properly bashed up, it'll be Rosyth. If it's still vaguely watertight but in need of some uh, some serious going over, then Camel Laird can do it. But I mean, outside of that, you're you're going to struggle in the UK to find anywhere big enough because I mean, you just look at a look at a satellite view of Portsmouth, and because now they've updated it, so there is actually a QE parked there. And if you just pull the QE out and try and fit it in all the various docks, yards, all the little slips and everything, and dry docks, it's like yeah, they're, 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 you're not going to fit that anywhere. Mm. I mean. You, I don't. I, I don't even know if you can even get QE in the in the main basin because there's two there's two larger slips that can that grant access to the um, BAE yards, which I think now are actually closed in the main basin. I don't know. Are they closed though? I know they, they were thinking about closing them down. Um, uh, well, they have those two larger slips, but I think for the Q, I don't think you could fit the QE in even no. those slips. But I think also you need to widen the actual gates to get into the basin. 
That's what I mean. Uh, for the QE to actually get in. Um... And given the, given the, you've got another smaller basin with access. Basically, what you'd have to be, you'd have to be doing, I think, if you wanted to do to be able to deal with the QE at Portsmouth, is you'd have to, you'd have to move the gates on the two larger slip accesses to the basin forwards, um, and you'd also have to ba- knock through in between and turn the, that that one, those two larger slips into one much larger slip which then you then run into the problem of you're now you you've gone from having the ability to repair and maintain two type 45 separately to okay you could probably get three type 45s in at the same time but they're all they, they it's it's kind of an all or nothing at that point you're either got them all in or you, you don't have any of them in yeah you, you almost need to actually and this is going to this is going to sound terrible. You either do that, or you need to extend the smaller slips, move them out, and mm. if people are looking, they'll be able to see what talk, what I'm talking about because mm. there are there is one sort of smaller docky area, and there's two smaller slips which mm. could be extended, and they could extend that out to try and maintain the ability to maintain multiple destroyers and that size ships, which they might need to anyway. Mm. And while they're doing that, the middle one. The 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 the, low, the sort of middle big uh, the middle bigger slip would have to be made a lot wider. But then you run into access problems for the um, the smaller basin that's next that's next to the main promontory. Yeah, I suppose, well, to, yeah. I suppose the the other option might be to um, I suppose you could probably again people probably have to be looking at a Google. Uh, satellite view of Portsmouth at this point. The other option would be potentially to take the slightly odd trapezoid northwest corner of the basin and convert that into a QE, a slightly oddly shaped QE capable dry dock. Mm. Um, and then you'd have to open up, open up the the northwest corner where on again on the map on the currently existing. Google Maps. There's currently a, a Type 45 dock there on the northwest corner. But if you turn that into a gate, uh, you'd have to move those two um, yeah, OPVs that are in there. The ferry but companies you, would be complaining. Eh, well, they, so they'd only be move, you'd only be moving it out occasionally, so they can live with it. But you you could, in theory, then sort of wedge a QE. It's Fountain Road, so it'd be on the south side of Fountain Road, and that might work. But again, Infra- all of these options infrastructure doesn't win votes no it would be hugely i mean it'd be very you'd get a lot of votes in portsmouth the 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 amount of money you'd have to invest but um but i mean even then you'd probably have to end up shaving a little bit off the corner of the of the internal part of the basin and yeah it's it, it, it would still be a big ask, and you'd still be only probably building something that can take a QE, maybe something a bit, a little bit bigger than a QE, but not much greater than a QE. Speaking of which, you've seen the uh, South Korean. Yes, the QE streamlined yeah. version. Yes. I was going to say it's a, yeah, it's got a rather interesting looking um, set of angles to it, doesn't it? The the bridges look very Cylon-esque, mm-hmm. and I still don't know. Still don't know what they're doing with the ski ramp. 
they've fared over the sides of the ski ramp. So, yeah, you can't really, you won't, you won't be flying off your drones down, uh, down either side of the ski ramp, will you? <laughs> well, that's because I think they have plans for the Cylons. Yeah. I don't know. It's it, it, you sit there and look at some of these things and go, mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, it's um, I don't know. It it, it looks like t um, another version of the Queen Elizabeth, I suppose. It's yeah. It's, 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 being, it's, it's being built with the Italians. Um, that would explain the aesthetics. Well, I was going to say that you know, I still don't understand the the, the, the fairing around the, um, the ski ramp on the bow. Hmm. Unless they were planning to use it to ram things, maybe. But um... I, I know it, I know it's a little bit ir irreverent, but I, I do still find, and, and I know they have a massive shipbuilding industry, but I still do find it quite amusing that this is all being proposed by Hyundai, because... <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, over over in in the UK, the only real thing you know you know them for is cars. So it is it, it's, it, it's the equivalent yeah. of someone saying like the Ford, the, the Ford Motor Corporation or Chrysler are now proposing a an aircraft carrier. It's not that out. It's not that odd. I mean, there's Rolls Royce, for example. Yeah, but Rolls Royce have got a long history of making engines and stuff, so that's <laughs> slightly less. But yeah, and uh, random things. It, but yeah. again, why would why would they need to build this? Why does South Korea need a fast jet capable carrier? I mean, looking at it, I think they're almost trying to build a stealth carrier, which is a bit of an oxymoron. <laughs> I think that's what those pairings are for. It's like we made an effort, guys. It, it, it only shows up on radar as a forty thousand ton ship. <laughs> yeah, but I still, like the I still don't understand what role it would have. Um, it's survivability. It, it, but 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 the carrier there would, I suppose, be would have to be an escort vessel, wouldn't it, to maintain shipping lanes into South Korea? Um, beyond that, um, yeah, everything's close by anyway. It, it might be. It might be part of a kind of. China has one, has some now. We have to have some too, kind of thing. I mean, the same way you have the South American dreadnought arms race in the run up to World War Two. Chile and Argentina have more than enough land border, and Argentina and Brazil have a massive land border as well. So, theoretically, you could look at those and say, well, you know, any conflict is clearly going to be on land. A navy is slightly irrelevant to the whole thing, except for safeguarding trade, but they built a bunch of dreadnoughts mm. anyway so it could it could be that but also to be perfectly honest you know we we have discussed this before the japanese are now they, they've kind of dropped most of the charade with the Izumos mm. and are making them into carriers and for better or worse korea and japan do not have the world's best no, history no. so it, it, no, it's, it's I, even worse it's even worse than britain and france really isn't it yeah i suspect i suspect that it, it's partly we like them for their cheese and occasionally their wine it's uh, yeah i suspect it's partly it is partly china 
and I suspect most of the justifications in public will be China, but I also suspect a lot of the underlying bit will also be Japan's got carriers again. We know how this ends. <laughs> Even if it doesn't come down to that, I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of Koreans who will sleep safer knowing that they they have matched the Japanese in this field. Yeah, but but wouldn't but again, yeah, if I, I can see with my limited understanding that surely South Korea would be better off building something more akin to a, a set of three invincibles than. Um, you know, than a, a Queen Elizabeth because well, I mean, the, the trouble got, is your invincible. The trouble is, it, what's the smallest size of full spectrum carrier you can now build with the size of aircraft? Because remember, aircraft an aircraft carrier's size is determined by the size and number of aircraft you want to carry on. Yeah. So that's it. That it, literally, it's the hangar size. We talk so a lot about. Is- F-35 being substantially bigger and heavier, heavier than a um, Harrier means that your ship's going to be substantially bigger and heavier, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, to, to be to be fair, the um, this, this is, it looks like a QE, but it is a fair bit smaller than the QE. It's yes. supposed to be 30,000 yeah. tonnes dry. And in a lot of ways, apart from the two islands, especially when you look at it down, sort of look at it down a down the deck, I suppose, from a forward view, it does remind me more more of an updated invincible type design because yeah, it's it's it, you've got a single single straight through flight deck, and whereas on the invincibles it was generally a case of park your aircraft at the back and along the starboard side with the flight deck kind of running down the port side. Effectively, the only difference they've done here is that most of the flight line for the helicopters and everything is now on the port side, and the flight and the, the, the takeoff and landing area is amidships rather than rather than the other way around. Yeah, um, no, you're right. And although well, I do notice the other thing, they at least on one of the models they've got a little um, drone launcher, drone launch takeoff and launch pad mounted aft okay one's I was, I was wondering about that because I, I, I was just commenting before that the uh, you know they the fairings on either side of the ski ramp up the front sort of means that you can't send your um drones over the bow on a flat deck yeah the, the model i'm looking at they've got this kind of we again weirdly trapezoidal what looks like a takeoff and landing area for rotary rotary wing drones um mounted aft which i suppose it's a concept at least to investigate and the 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 lifts you can see uh two side lifts one on each side clearly designed to take a single f-35 or equivalent at a time and they've got the dockyards to build them Mm. being one of the countries that are still building merchant ships Yep, that does help them. You see, they have got the infrastructure. And the skills. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, they might not necessarily have the history, but, um, you know, there's not much point having the history and the skills if you don't have the dockyards and the infrastructure. <laughs> oh, well. <clears throat> so, next subject then was, what do you do when you have 
a limited budget, and a whole shopping list. Well, this is the trouble for the US Navy at the moment. They have apparently limited budget. And then you hear the figures they're talking about. We're talking Navy asked in its um, FY20, its financial year 22 budget for 121.8 million for DGX. And you sit there and go, that's not a lot of money in US defense spending terms. And you go for all these, and it's a couple of hundred million. It's a, it, you're not talking huge sums, and you're going, okay, why are you doing this to an extent? What is your reason for it? How tight are things that this is what you're doing? What are you having to spend money on that this is considered sensible to start causing yourself so much trouble down the line? Because the thing is, with the DTGX, the SNX, and the Future Fighter, these aren't going to cause trouble this year, no. But they're going to cause trouble lacking them in the 2030s a lot. It's a decade-long procurement. It's a decade-long procurement cycle, and you're starting to play around with it. Yeah, although if they're going to, if I think that what the choice, the choice that's been presented is fighter, destroyer, or sub. Yeah. Um. I think. I think if they're gonna if they're gonna if they're gonna say right we're gonna progress with one, and delay the others. I think the priority order has to be destroyer first, then sub, then fighter. I'd agree, and that was the order they were going in anyway. Yeah, because you know the Ali Burks are a decent but legacy design. They're reaching. The, the design itself has basically reached the end of its its developmental lifespan. And there's <laughs> a lot more new systems that the US wants to put on its ships that are going to be very difficult to retrofit onto a Burke. So they, they need a new clean sheet design. Um, it's also, of those three, the Burke represents the oldest um, legacy item that they have on, on, on the table at the moment. The so, sub, what they're most short of, isn't it? They're yeah. most short of effective escorts. And yeah. uh, mm -hmm. let's face it, that's largely because of the LCS program. And uh, mm -hmm. But then, you know, um, at the same time, they are building a new class of escorts. Yes, so slightly better. They, what probably, is that? they probably could put aside the Burke for, for a while and focus on constellations while they're coming up with a replacement mm. Burke. The main problem they've got is that they're also having to drop a bunch of the Ticonderogas. The thing is, when you when you look at the subs, they've got the Virginias. Now, strange as it sounds, I think probably to us who kind of grown up with the Virginias and the Astutes and things like that being of the next gen, the Virginias are now actually a surprisingly long in the tooth design. Um, well, I, but, I think it was only a couple of episodes again I, earlier. I was saying it is actually due. The U.S. Navy yeah. is due to replace them. That they're at that point. But they are still vastly more modern. They are still a vastly more modern design than destroyers than the than the Burks. Now, granted, obviously the the Virginia the submarine world of submarines where stealth is absolutely king does move a little bit faster and is a little bit more hardline than um, destroyers. But they do have the various blocks of the Virginias that they're building at the moment. So whichever block they're up to will be more capable than the original block ones. So given that I think they've still got a little bit of life left in that program, as opposed to the compared to the Burks, which is really kind of at the end of the line, 
then that that you can probably afford to to put the funding off for the next gen sub for a year or two um but not too much longer than that and then when it comes to fighters i'm sorry but you you're just you're still in the process of introducing the f35 and for for better or worse that is a relatively modern aircraft yes you might want to start thinking about replacing it in some way shape or form but um one there are other aerial elements of the u.s armed forces that are going to be looking at um new aircraft and the u.s air force obviously is looking at their their next gen fighter so there can even if you don't end up using that airframe there's going to be a bunch of work that you can take from that that you could then use later on which hopefully should shorten the development cycle although knowing the us they'll probably still charge them for a full one um but but separately to that whilst the us loves to build everything in everything in the us made by the us for the us etc etc of the three programs aircraft are the one one area of those three where there is a current his recent history of the us accepting at least some foreign input or foreign designs because the f-35 was obviously designed in conjunction with bae um and they're still using the t-45 goshawks which are the bae hawks which are a completely foreign design and the f-35 is replacing the harriers which again are based on british design so between the fact that they're willing to take input from foreign programs and the existing U.S. Air Force program, I'd say, if anything, it's the future fighter that they can afford to delay on the most. Because you've also got Tempest in the U.K. So if the if the next gen U.S. Navy fighter was to be a collaborative effort, you'd be able to theoretically draw on the expertise and lessons learned from the U.S. Air Force's next fighter and Tempest which should foreshorten your development cycle quite considerably, as opposed to subs or destroyers, which the, I don't think the US is ever going to accept a history of buying, much as I'd love them to build buy Type 26s. Um, I don't or, think they ever Or Type A3s. Or astutes, but they're not really, let's face it, they're not going to. So The, pre the precedent has been set with the Constellation, though. It's true, but when you look at the original whole form of the Constellation versus what they've got now... I mean, the, 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 the departure from the original Type 26 design over to the Canadian surface combatant is quite radical. The departure from the from the original uh, design to the Constellation, I think, is probably even an even bigger step. Right. It's kind of a half, I'd, I'd say they are a half sister class to the original design. Although, mind you, actually having said that, you know, if we can persuade the government to shake loose a few extra quid, I wouldn't object to... Um, the Type 32s basically being um, Canadian surface combatant variants of the Type 26s, since they've added a little bit of length, a few a thousand or so more tons, and a bunch more combat systems. That would be nice. That would be really nice. But as it is, well, we could talk about the Type 83 fitting into the ZGX program. That would be interesting. Yeah, but that assumes that the uh, UK government does something sensible, like listen to us instead of their usual thing of trying to fit a quart into a pint pot. Yeah, and 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 build a new luxury yacht. 
Well, actually, honestly, that makes some sense to me. I, I, uh, the thing is, I actually support us getting a new royal yacht because the thing is, not many nations have one to go around and do their selling and do their things. And the thing is, lots of people go, well, that means you shouldn't have one. And I go, well, actually, no, it's a USP. It's a unique selling point. Why don't you do the same thing with another hood or another vanguard? Just, oh. just, just uh, give it a bit of extra silverware. Unfortunately, we no longer have the numbers. <laughs> much as I, much as I'd love to build a twenty-five thousand ton Type eighty-three and and also add a Royal Yacht Quarters into it, I, I kind of like the idea of being able to separate, have have a kind of a national flagship which can go around doing presents and diplomatic stuff without having to eat into our hilariously tiny escort fleet. Um, as it as it stands at the moment. Plus, I, I I would know it's very interesting when it comes to something that is going to be a national prestige item and carry and probably be called, called HMS Duke of Edinburgh. Notice how the government almost immediately went, Campbell Laird, could you please yes. build something properly? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, straight to Camel Laird. <laughs> you know, if, you're going to be, if you're going to be building a battle cruiser, why not just put in a ballroom? <laughs> because frankly Jackie Fisher has thankfully long not been in this world and we don't want to bring his spirit back um, that that would be scary uh, you know but the thing is we're not the only nation building sort of ships at the moment this is, uh, the point is it's not just America building ships and this part of the problem America has at the moment is they are now in and we are now in a world where finally governments have woken up and realised hang on great power competition didn't end in 1991 it's a shock and a horror I'm not sure how I don't know four year old me figured that one out but apparently I did before they did but how does a royal yacht fit into that equation? Um, a royal yacht fits yeah. into that equation quite well if you're doing great power competition. Because you need a USP to turn up. You need something to be able to send for the diplomatic. And the thing is, suddenly Britain has something it can send which has a lot of status but isn't a warship. Yeah, and I, I think that... I think that's one of the things. It's it's partly it's the we're here to help because they have mentioned it be used for things like disaster relief as well and as a hospital ship. So it's got that ability to show up without the both without the the implications of actually sending a warship, but also without the draw, as I said, the drawdown on the Royal Navy's resources of sending a warship. Because it means Especially if you get if you get a larger Type 83s and you get and end up with a like for like replacement for the Type 45s, it basically means that you can send the you can send the Duke of Edinburgh in to do say disaster relief work, which was something else we've discussed as a use for naval vessels, without compromising on the UK's ability to send a carrier battle group out somewhere with a full size escort, whereas because of because of the lack of numbers of ships that we have these days, if you if you did have a Type eighty three conversion with a, with a with a Royal Yacht Suite, if you wanted to send it out to do that mission, you would then be acknowledging that well, let's say with six hulls, you can have a two ship escort for the carrier battle group. You can have this vessel doing you know this role, 
and that's it. You can do nothing else. You cannot deploy a, a, a serious surface combatant to anything else other than your carrier escort group while you're doing this diplomatic role. Um, if, if the Royal Navy was larger, um, let's say they built eight or 12 Type 83s and kept the rest of the fleet at, at least the size that it is going to be, then, yeah, at that point, especially if you're building very large Type 83s, you could probably have uh, a kind of multi-mission bay which you could swap out for Royal Yacht Quarters or Diplomatic Quarters or Disaster Relief Quarters or whatever. But uh, at the current size, you can't really really afford to do that. Unless, of course, they um, they turn the design for the Duke of Edinburgh from less of a yacht's, yacht-shaped object to more of a HMS Ocean style vessel with yacht-shaped lines. <laughs> mm. uh, look, I'm just a bit worried here that you know there might be a bit of a case of uh, royal envy going on here, given the kind of luxury yachts you see floating around the Gulf states. I don't think so, because it seems to be coming from a lot of Britain going, well, hang on, we cut our cloth because we were staying in the European Union, and so that didn't matter. Hang on, now we're being Global Britain again. What was Global Britain? Well, Global Britain was going around, going around the world and saying hello. Uh, right then, do we want to do this by jet? Well, the trouble is the Americans do it by jet. They have the biggest and the best, and they do it. And that's the American thing. And that's the American brand, so it's aping the American brand, which we're going to have to do to an extent, but we don't really want to do that. We want to be our own brand because... You only get anywhere if you are your own brand. And this sounds like a PR speech, but Britain's brand is maritime. So here comes the Royal Yacht. Yeah. And and I say, it is, it, the, I think the thing that tipped me over into being vaguely in favour of it is the fact that it is multi-use. Uh, or it's ostensibly supposed to be multi-use. So whereas, whereas Britannia was, it was a cadet, cadet and seaman training ship when it wasn't being used as a royal yacht but that was basically all that it, it did for the most part it was a royal yacht that had royals on it when the royals weren't there it was a training vessel and occasionally in one or both of those roles it would do some minor diplomatic work it did a lot of trade work a lot of trade mm. missions it was but, good at showing up and hosting yeah. events yeah but that that was more in its role as a, as a royal yacht as part of the working royals' duties, mm. whereas the new one that they're proposing, um, although Britannia had the theoretical capability to be a hospital ship, it never really put that to use. Was the new one? I think if they, from what they're proposing, and if they design it properly, can be used for hospital ship disaster relief roles quite a bit, which I suspect it probably will be, plus the seaman trading training role plus occasionally uses of Royal Yacht, plus full-on diplomatic work, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a lot more of a multi-purpose, multi-role vessel, which, ironically enough, we should make it a little bit larger because if you're going to want to have it as a hospital ship, potentially able to do disaster relief, being able to show up to various places and um, manage situations ferry diplomats around etc that means you're going to at least need a helipad capable of taking a fairly substantial helicopter probably also a hangar 
um, to store it, and you don't want it to end up looking like the like HMS Tiger and HMS Blake with a socking great box on the back, because that's just ugly and not good for a present ship. So you've got to be able to incorporate that all into the design, which means you're probably talking about a ship that's going to be pushing north of ten to 12,000 tons. Mm-hmm. You can do it. You could do it on less, but if you do it on less, you'd then be compromising its ability to act as a decent hospital training diplomatic and everything else ship uh, the, the idea of a multi-role ambassadorship is a good one but you've got to do it properly at the right size yeah and then there's the other yacht the people's liberation Army's yacht it's mm. uh, uh, taking on form in the shanghai yeah. just while i'm sorry yes Drac is now showing us a lovely painting or print he has managed to get delivered and framed, and it looks gorgeous. The Black Battle Fleet of the ninth, late 19th century. Sorry, what viewers. What we should return the Royal Navy to. Yes. Sorry, listeners, you'll just have to imagine it. It's good. It needs a bit of TLC, but anyway. As we were saying, the Type 003. Taking shape. Mm. Looking, mm-hmm. like, looking like a serious aircraft carrier. Only about five meters shorter than um, the Ford. Yeah, and looking yeah. suspiciously like a slightly upsized Charles de Gaulle. <laughs> it's only got two lifts. Um, they seem to be rather large lifts. So, mm. Probably um, twin aircraft lifts. Yeah. I'm not sure that's necessarily a loss of capability there because of that. Mm. Uh, single island, so no, they're not going with the British look. Although the island's not actually attached to it just yet. Mm. And potentially three catapults. Yeah. Based on interp- interpreting the um, shape of the holes in the deck and the uh, equipment lying around on the dockyard. Mm. So, it's, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's a real carrier and it's coming together real fast. And I, su- I suspect that there's going to be, um, ba- based on some other stuff, I mean, it's not, it's not conclusive, but there have been some other photos going around that, um, well, we know that they built a kind of a land-based Type 003 simulator. Yes. They've got a false island, and they've been checking to see how aircraft operate from there. But if I remember correctly, recently there were some photos circulating that showed that one of the aircraft that was recently spotted operating off of there was there honestly not an f-35 clone governor yes they built a mock-up of that for um mm. for their what do you call it the deck handling yeah some trials um to see how things you know how easy how long it takes to move to shift something that size and weight around and um all those sorts of issues mm. that you need to figure out before you start actually trying to operate an aircraft carrier as opposed to as opposed to the um, the the Sukhoi twenty seven dash thirty three dash whatever um, J fifteen yeah yeah which, that, which I mean, again would they, make sense that, yeah the J fifteen they've been putting a lot of effort into actually developing so it's mm. you know it's now got you know um, new engines and uh, um, you know the, the it's it's not it's uh, much less similar to its um, Russian origins shall mm. we say then um then it may appear it's uh, it does appear yeah. to be quite a an effort put into that aircraft and, and it, i guess it makes sense now because we kept on wondering why the hell are they persisting with this huge beast 
off of these tiny little aircraft carriers, Liaoning and Shandong. Yeah, can, they can barely take off with just with uh, two wingtip-mounted missiles. Mm. Well, he, here's why: it's now they've now got a, a carrier that can that needs a nice, heady, uh, capable fighter, and that mm. nice, heady, capable fighter has been through several years worth of um, development and testing and training. Yeah, and I I think this is one of, the, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a bit interesting because I think the um, just slight, slightly off topic, but kind of on topic as well. The the Chinese, with the, between the Chinese version and various other bits and pieces, I think that the loose, what you could loosely describe as the family derived from the Su-27 is probably going to end up being one of the most widely built, widely circulated um, families of jet aircraft in history, given just how yeah. many variants there are and how many different countries have, have those variants. I mean, you can point to things like the F-16, but and as you say, it's like the, the J-15 is kind of an iterative, iterative, iterative step over the Su-33, which is in itself a step over the Su-27 and so on and so forth. Um, but at the same time, if you look at a, like a, a fresh off the production model, left uh, production line F-16A back in the 70s, and the, uh, the the variants that are flying around these days, it's it's as much of a, a change, I think. True, true. Um, yeah, it's the and then and then yeah, and then you've got the the well, J is it J thirty one or J thirty five? They're they're twin engine. Honestly, we didn't develop this after we nicked several terabytes of data from the F thirty five program, Governor. Um, yeah, look, I mean, that, that, that one's been kicking around for a few years without any, um, uh, you know, apparently not having any success. And there's been lots of speculation about it being adapted for use as their carrier aircraft. Um, but, it, you know, I guess that these photos of the mock-up indicate that, well, perhaps it does have a place. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, it would make a certain amount of sense because it's a, it's a stealthy aircraft um, it's a bit smaller than the J-15. It's about 15 feet shorter, apart from anything else. Um, so if they can make that work, it, it would make a certain degree of sense. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to stop using or not use the J-15. I mean, it's like the, the, the US is using the F-35 on its carriers, but they're not ditching the Super Hornets just yet. Um and that's what FGX is supposed to replace, isn't it? The Super Hornet, yeah. not the. Um, yeah. But but being a considerably large larger aircraft, the J-15 would have certain advantages in terms of just sheer weapons carriage, apart from anything else. Mm. So you could end up with maybe the J-31 being the the fighter, and the J-15 being the fighter bomber dash strike um, variant or aircraft. Which would also, I mean, if they've got slightly smaller aircraft for their fighters, also allow them to update um, update their uh, air group to a slightly larger size because you can get more yes. aircraft in. But I th yeah, now I mean, it's almost as big as the Ford, but it's not nuclear powered. Hmm. I guess you know if they wanted to. Um, control 
you know, the first island chain to the second island chain, which is, you know, the roughly the, dis the distance between China and Guam, mm. um, it probably doesn't need to be nuclear powered, does it? Well, I mean, does it need to be nuclear powered, period? I mean, the QEs are doodling around on conventional power. The And for a lot of the Cold War, the US Navy was doing a global strike role with a good chunk of their fleet being Forrestals and Kitty Hawks and other such conventionally power and the midways all conventionally powered um, again though it's, it's, it's the, ab the ability mm. to provide on board stores for your air group mm. um, because you know that space that you needed to use for fuel and ballast is no longer needed to be used for fuel and ballast it can be used for expendables and space and machine shops and accommodation and you know extra hangar space so yeah, but then again, they're only building a single type 003. So there's there's some reports that the follow-on type 004 will be nuclear powered and slightly larger, and that the whole thing would would follow the kind of the trend that they've done with the type 001, the type 002. Um, yes. They're iterative. Yeah, they they're they make things they make small gradual improvements, which means it actually makes a lot of sense in the Chinese system because it prevents you having a massive failure. The odds of this being a bad ship are very low because it's using a lot of technology which they're used to. Yes, it's got a few new bits, but it's not. It's kind of like, instead of us going, right, then we're going to develop a new class of carriers if I was America, or a new class of destroyers, keep evolving the existing design. And let's be honest, that they could do a very cheap DDGX by just going, right, then we're going to take all the equipment we've currently got on an Arlie, uh, the, the latest Ali Burks and put it in, in the Zumwalt hull or take the Zumwalt power system and a Zumwalt hull to put in the other stuff from an Ali Burke, fix that all together. That's all stuff we know works. We'll put that as the first generation of the DGX. And then after we've got that in the water and working, the next generation will have new changes and the next generation will be next batch will have changes and the next batch. The the Chinese are very, very iterative. It's a case of we've got this, we know what's working, then we built this, which is basically a clone of the first one, but it's testing our techniques. Slightly bigger, we built it. The third one, it's a bigger, it's a full-size carrier, catabar uh, carrier. It's got all that stuff which is new, but everything else is stuff we're used to. So once we've got that in service, we know that works. We'll then build a nuclear-powered carrier, which will have the nuclear stuff, which will be new to us, but will have the other stuff which works. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, it does reflect in some ways that the, the Chinese are following what now is a different path for development and testing, but actually used to be the old way of doing things, which was build prototypes, test prototypes in full operational service, and then make decisions as to what you're going to do there, thereafter, the idea the idea that to develop new uh, uh, sort of a final new technology or a final new form of vessel or aircraft must involve lots of design work, um, test flights, etc., in a in a controlled environment, and then that leads to a finalised design which you kick into production, which is your actual militarily deployed air, aircraft or ship or tank or whatever is a relatively new and actually relatively western concept it's it's not historically what was done and it's not 
even in the West, and it's not necessarily even, obviously, it's not universal either. It's you look also at the, very expensive. Yeah, but if you can afford to do it, it's actually better. Because, to be perfectly honest, these days, the development cycle of Western designs is so long and so expensive, you probably would be better off just building a prototype and working things out at sea or in the air. I mean, in the air is a little bit more difficult because if something goes horribly wrong, that tends to have catastrophic consequences with, you know, um, lithospheric breaking. <laughs> but uh, ships, you have to worry about that slightly less because you think, look back at the 18th, uh, 19th century. What was the Royal Navy doing? They, they were building these odd one-offs just to test concepts. They built Devastation to test the concept of turretless ironclad uh, with Thunder as well. They built Monarch to test the idea of turreted ships, period. Um, Cerberus, although that was built for the Victorian Navy uh, in what was to later become Australia, that was in many ways a concept to see if the the sort of the turret-based coastal defense vessel could be a workable thing and that trend continued all the way through i mean even even as far as coming right up to the pre-dreadnought era you had okay the royal sovereigns were being built as a full class but they were also looked around and said well what if we use the old conventional turret system does that still work and they built the hood as a sub variant and it's like well let's see if it works it turns out it didn't um and they went on to the majestics but the idea of one-off test vessels was was pretty much a thing until the Royal Navy decided it started. It needed to mass-produce designs, um, and even even then, once you got further on, there there was there was still a, a culture of where possible building prototype or test vessels to see if the concept could be taken further. HMS Unicorn is a good example of that. Mm. A single vessel, uh, an Ark Royal, HMS a single dreadnought herself. Um, if we consider the entire Royal Navy destroyer program into the war periods, it starts off with a couple and of prototypes. Let's face it, the um, argument of having you know, non-standard ships hmm. doesn't really count anyway, because every ship gets upgraded differently at, at different points anyway. Hmm. So, um, you know, it's it's not like you can just run your, your L.A. Burke into any old shipyard and, and pull the uh, spare part out of a um, warehouse, because... Hmm. You've got flight one, flight two, flight three, and yeah. each of those different flights have all undergone different degrees of modernisation on different ships anyway. So, yeah, um, yeah it's that that concept of well, mass-produced production doesn't seem to hold water no. uh, and at, I mean, at that level anyway. Yeah, and I mean to be honest, it's like it whilst whilst it's a little bit further back in time from now it still is relatively current compared to some of the examples we've just cited for a long time for a very long time up until recently the u.s navy was operating the uss enterprise which is basically a one-off prototype nuclear supercarrier um and as you said because of the various changes and upgrades they give things you can't really look at say something like the uss nimitz and the USS Reagan and argue that they are the same ship. They're yeah. technically both Nimitz class, but they're completely, almost completely different internally. And that's um, before you get into the chemistry of nuclear reactors. Yeah, so... No one reactor is the same as another. And I mean, when you look at it from the Chinese perspective, 
let, let's face it, I don't think once once they decide they're happy with their carrier designs and they really hit their stride, I don't think Lianning uh, and Shandong are going to be much long, long for this world. They'll, e- no, they'll be, either... Yeah. They'll Training them, areas or... Square, yeah, they're, yeah. yeah, they're moving them to be training ships or museum ships or scrap them or maybe even find... Um, maybe even find an ally that they're happy to palm them off to. At oh, which good point, Lord, North Korea with an aircraft carrier. Oh, don't worry. If they give them to them, they'll break down in about five minutes. Um, so that's but, why South Korea's building an aircraft carrier, mm, just in case that happens. Yeah, well, then, then we can look forward to an interesting North Korean propaganda film about how Kim Jong-un is actually uh, the inventor of the aircraft carrier. Um... Or, or something like this. But no, I mean, that, that that's kind of probably going to be the fate of those two. And then you'll have this conventionally powered 003, which initially will kind of be the, the Chinese equivalent of the Enterprise. It'll be this kind of almost the same size, almost the same capabilities, but somewhat different as they get into a 004, type 004 production run. And then eventually it'll probably become a training support etc vessel while they they keep the main fleet running with 004s or 004s and 005s when they get round to it but it, it does make a certain amount of sense to do to do it that way i think and in the meantime they're keeping busy um intimidating their neighbors yeah mm-hmm. oh poor malaysia well we did kind of say this was going to happen yeah, yeah. Um, an interesting one, though. I mean, it was a you know a flight of what, what's the best description for them? Um, supply aircraft, mm. um, parachute, paratroop kind of deploying aircraft. Um, yeah, it, it was. It wasn't exactly the, the um, a force that one would have anticipated. It wasn't a. An, it wasn't a a, a wing of H um, six bombers with. Um, J-11s or J-16s escorting them. It was um, a big bunch of heavy lifters. In a way, that's more scary. Yeah, like, exactly. If, if it means a parachute drop on a uh, remote outpost, for sure. I mean, I think it also it also shows a, a certain degree of, of, I guess you could call it cunning, um, for, for when it comes to dealing with things like this, because it... Again, it's kind of it's demonstrating the era of the angry letter or the formal protest is pretty much over because China doesn't care. Um, so it, it comes back to this idea of we are going to do this. Yes, technically, this is a violation of ex-nation sovereignty. What are you going to do about it? Because you can protest, you can have your diplomats say X, Y, and Z. We genuinely don't care because we've got far more leverage over you than you could possibly ever have over us. So what are you actually going to do about it? And if the answer is nothing, well, then China has achieved its policy goal and it can move on to the next step. And if someone like Malaysia then turns around and decides, actually, we are going to get aggressive and bullshit over it, well, again, it's... I think the particular choice of aircraft is is a relatively clever one because you say yes, it could be used for paratroopers and landings and things like that. But on the face of it, if 
Malaysia decides we don't like this and they blow one of these things out of the sky in the kind of the ultimate escalation, well, China can quite legitimately point to it and go, there was never any threat to you from this. There was no military threat. We sent over a few transport aircraft. No one's going to try and take over Malaysia with like four aircraft with some and, and some paratroopers. Whereas if they'd flown a bomber or a fighter or something else that could be loaded with active munitions, then it would be much more of a clear cut. You flew an active warplane over us. We have every right to shoot it down. Whereas if it's it was just a transport aircraft, Governor. It, yeah, it, yeah. it allows them to leverage, leverage this opportunity with minimal risk to themselves. Well, 16 but, transport aircraft, that's what? That's, it's not an invasion force. It's not an invasion force, but if it was loaded with, I don't know, a, a hundred troops per aircraft, or these are the big ones. These were their big transport aircraft, yeah. which could take a lot more than that. But let's say they're loaded with a hundred troops in the stores. That's actually quite a significant fighting force. This is the thing. It represents the possibility of a significant fighting force, but it doesn't represent a direct and immediate threat in a way that it could be argued that any shootdown would be justified. Because oh. you can drop, even if you drop 1,600 troops into Malaysia, you're not going to topple the Malaysian government or cut take over the country with 1,600 paratroopers. Um, whereas, you know, a fighter with a precision-guided bomb or... A bomber with several cruise missiles or something that you could argue could do some serious damage there and then and therefore you're justified in shooting it down i mean it's the same same kind of thing um if you think about it from a from a western perspective or from this specifically uk perspective we know the russians love buzzing the scottish coastline but if there's a reason that most of the time they do it with tu-95s because if if somebody makes a navigational mistake or something, if Russia comes flitting over northern Scotland with an SU-27 or an SU-35 or a TU-160 and the RAF says, you know, get out now or we shoot you down, they don't respond, they get shot down, Russia might protest, but pretty much everyone in the world is going to go, yeah, that's a, that's a war plane over someone else's territory. They had every right to do it. Whereas if it's a Tu-95 maritime patrol aircraft, not that they've pushed, not that the Russians have pushed their luck this far yet, but if the if a Tu-95 happened to take a wrong turn over the, the highlands, there would be a lot more possible recriminations if the RAF decided to blow that out of the sky. No, basically the RAF would be forced to try and make it land somehow. Yeah. Which, which, which is safe. It, it ensures the safety of the Russian aircraft, and it also it puts more of an onus on the RAF. And similarly here, it's like it, you're you're pushing it to the maximum where China has every justification to be very, very upset if somebody does shoot it down. But they're also at the same time flexing their power over them, but in a way that makes it very difficult for them to respond. Maybe a year down the line, the next flight might be you know, H6s or something. But by that point, they've established a precedent. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, while all this is taking place down south around Malaysia, um, it appears that they decide to move AWACS and anti-submarine aircraft into Fire Cross Reef in the Spratly Islands. Mm. So that's yet more, yet another example of the creeping militarization, you know, of these uh 
island fortresses. They weren't going to be uh, holding military aircraft, but now they are. Yeah. I mean, what, why else would you build, you know, dozens of uh, um, armoured hangars and uh, fuel dumps and uh, CIWS uh, weapons towers all around your airfield anyway? But um, yes, they've they've now actually moved in, and this is. You know, probably because the Philippines has started to push back. It started sending its small, you know, navy and coast guard um, out to help its fishermen that are getting harassed by the militia since the, um, uh, you know, that sort of big incursion on Whitson Reef earlier this year. So now, because the Philippines is pushing back, um, Beijing saying, "Well, no, we're not going to have any have any of this," so we'll be sending in. Yeah, more of our big guns. Yeah, although again, it's, it's China is it's is once again challenging anyone else to stop them. Yes, and also it's that one step away from, as you said before, mm. you know, an armed combat aircraft. It's an AWACS yeah. and uh, anti-submarine surveillance aircraft. So. Yeah. But yeah, it, again, it establishes a precedent. If if people are still running around, and I think this is this is this is ultimately the thing of, and as we've said before, in other episodes, the the whole end of history, Western liberal democracy will triumph forever, rah rah rah, which was going around in the nineties, is proven to be manifestly false. But unfortunately, a there's a still a lot of people out there who seem to be addicted to the concept, not realizing that yes, there is going to be it's like when was the last time there was ever a situation on the planet where there was a single superpower? Yeah, yeah. there. There's always there's always even in in times when you could potentially argue that there was, there have always been rivals ascending or trying to ascend, and. You need to, if you wish to retain your preeminent position, you have to act in the defense of that position and you have to pay for the forces requ required to do that. If you don't do one of the, well, if you don't do both of those things, you will lose your position um, or someone will challenge you for your position and there'll be a very bloody fight. Um, and unfortunately, I think far too many people are still addicted to this idea of you know western liberal democracy rah 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 let's go we we win everything forever because we are not not because because of any particular reason just because we are and china is rather quickly demonstrating that's not the case <laughs> so i mean you, you look at all the, all the various things look at what they're doing to the, to the for, like regardless of the details look at what's happening with the uyghurs and yeah and back after the second world war though everyone was all very much yes well we will we will never again never allow again. Yeah. never and well yeah that worked out well with the gulags in the soviet union didn't it uh, mm. it it's never been something that's actually been enforced and china's sitting there going oh, we're doing it we're doing it in our own lands again what are you going to do to stop us and and <clears throat> You know, there are people who sit there going, oh, but China should be a Western liberal democracy. And if they want to be equal to us as Western liberal democracies, they shouldn't be doing this. It's like, well, I'm sorry, but China doesn't buy into your worldview and they have the guns to back it up. <laughs> and the economic 
um, you know, yeah. and, and, and the economy to back up that. So yes, exactly. It's, it's not as though it's not as though you know um, a few sanctions here and there are going to make a whiff of difference. No, I mean China's so tied into the world economy. To be honest, at this point, sanctioning China economically is about as beneficial as as, as threatening threatening somebody that you're going to punch yourself in the face to show them a let to teach them a lesson. It's like we're going to cut off what we're going to do. We're going to cut off. Chinese exports of, of complex electronics to punish their electronics industry, which will last all of two weeks until you get riots because no one can get an iPhone. <laughs> yes, yes, and that's the diff- that, and that's why the, the uh, next Cold War won't be anything like the last one. Yeah, well, because it's a, a very, very different economic situation. Yeah, because in the last Cold War, the Soviet and Western economic systems were basically running in parallel with each other with minimal crossover. Unless you're a, unless you're a General Zhukov and you want Coca-Cola that doesn't look like Coca-Cola, because everyone apparently loves Coca-Cola. Um, but, yeah, now, it's like, again, it, 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 a lot of it comes down to the fault of this whole end of history nonsense, because everyone's like, oh, end of history, the West will reign supreme forever and always etc like all all praise glorious liberal western democracy let's have a massively integrated global economy which of course will be centered on america and everything will be centered on america and everyone will use the dollar and all our economies will be tied together so we will follow america's glorious leadership into the future and then it turns out if you have your rival power completely tied into your global economic infrastructure you can't really do a lot to (laughs) Ah, self-deluded politicians ruining everything for everybody else. Take ah, twenty-seven. That's what we pay them for. That's what we pay them for. Uh, oh, well, anyway, we're leaving this on yet another positive note. But we've yeah, we are, we are. We are. We are. We could like that. We are. You know, we do have something positive in that there is the tank boat now in the world. So that is positive. And, that and, the, positive, and the positive thing is, hey, well, you know, we're what something like 15 for 15 on predictions so far. So if you want to know what's <laughs> happening next, everyone tune into Bilge Pumps next week. And uh, we're, we're, we're apparently ahead of everybody, of all the politicians, although to be honest, you know, staying ahead of people with, uh, <laughs> room, with a, yeah, with room temperature IQs is not usually that difficult, but we'll, we'll see how things go. You just have to watch out for the day, for the day when I'm wearing a t-shirt that just says smile. It's almost over. <laughs> don't go there please don't he he, he will do it mm. oh god have us all <laughs> all right well with that bout of on the nose bilge thank you all <laughs> thank you take See care you later bye, bye. <laughs> welcome to the bilge pumps where a bunch of naval geeks spout off <laughs>